0: Welcome to a new Björkness podcast. Ice cores provide valuable insight regarding the climate of the past, but collecting and understanding them can mean working in one of the most inhospitable places on the planet, Antarctica. I'm Stephen Alton, here again with my colleague, Ingil Pilsko. Good day. Ice cores provide a window into the past and allow researchers to understand aspects of Earth's climate from when the ice formed. But reconstructing the past requires understanding the processes affecting the ice where it forms. And that can require field studies in Antarctica. We're joined today by Ines Olivia. Hello. A new PhD student at the University of Bergen who's previously lived and worked in Antarctica. Welcome to the show. Thank you,
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So our listeners are probably familiar with the basic concepts of an ice core uh, you get snowfall and snow falls upon snowfall upon snowfall and it layers up and ice is formed and then you go there and you cut out a pillar through the ice. So as you go down through this pillar, you go back in time from the top going further and further back. So let's start with the question of how can you determine when the different levels of ice actually formed?
1: This is the matter then of dating the ice, I guess. Um, yeah, there is some different techniques. You can count the layers uh, by doing some radar measurements, for example. Then you get like an image of the ice and you see the layers um, through the glacier or the ice cap.
0: So that would be like uh, tree rings where you get a season of growth each year. And you can just count the rings to see how many years it's been.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you get uh, different properties from each layer. And then you get this um, yeah layering of uh, inside the, the ice cap. So you can actually see it with radar measurements. And then um, you can use also uh, different methods for dating the layers that you see. And one of the common uh, method is to date with volcanic eruptions so once you get the ice out of the glacier like uh, you have in front of you then you can count the layers and you see uh, dust horizons that correspond to volcanic eruptions and from yeah historical um, records you know which year this eruption has been so you get signatures from different eruptions within the ice
0: core. And you can actually I remember we've had previous people on the show And uh, you can actually tell whether an eruption is in one hemisphere or whether it's uh, a tropical eruption based on whether it's just in Antarctic ice cores or whether it's in Iceland and Greenland.
1: Yeah, then uh, you get an idea of the... um yeah, the dimension of your uh, eruption, because if it's uh, recorded in both hemispheres, then it's a massive one that went to the stratosphere and then it goes, uh, the dust got uh, all around the globe and uh, got deposited in both uh, Greenland and uh, Antarctica. Yes.
0: But volcanic dust and uh, sort of layers and dating the ice core isn't the only thing they're good for. You actually study water isotopes.
1: Yes, I do.
0: What's an isotope?
1: Isotopes of the like of the water molecule. Uh, so it's just different forms of uh, the water molecule you can get uh, on Earth. So a water molecule is H two O, and so each of those atoms can be replaced by another one um, heavier. So the most common water molecule is um, so two hydrogen atoms and then one oxygen atoms that is O16, but then the oxygen can be replaced by O18 or O17, which is heavier. Mm -hmm. And then you get these uh, water molecules that are heavier and um, they don't behave similarly in the water cycle and that's uh, why they're mostly used um, in Antarctic ice cores, for example.
0: So you also get um, hydrogen being just sort of H1, but you also get deuterium and tritium, H2 and H3. So do you get sort of different combinations of hydrogen and oxygen? Yes,
1: exactly. Now I just uh, said about the oxygen, but of course we get uh, hydrogen replacement. And uh, I personally only study um, uh, combination with deuterium, so H2 and uh, oxygen 18, uh, because they are the most uh, common and abundant ones mm. uh, compared to the even rarer ones that are uh, tritium or uh, Oxygen-17. But of course, uh, compared to the most abundant one, which is H2O16, um, yeah, those are very few on, on Earth, but yeah.
0: How do they actually form? How do you get different isotopes naturally forming in the ice?
1: Those isotopes uh, exist naturally on Earth um, and... When, you, when the water goes uh, to a phase change, for example, um, the different isotopes don't behave similarly. For example, the heavier ones tends to stay in the lower energy phase. So for example, for evaporation process, then you um, get the heavier isotopes that stays in the water state and then in the liquid phase, sorry, and then the lighter ones that goes to the uh, vapor phase and so this is called fractionation and uh, that's how you get uh, different amounts of isotopes uh, in different waters on so,
0: earth so this all comes down to sort of ratios of normal water to one of the variant isotopes
1: exactly we don't measure um, the amount of uh, rare isotopes we measure ratios compared to the most abundant one and, uh, yeah.
0: So what sort of information would you get from these ratios? I mean, how does that... What, yeah. what can you get out of this that's, that's valuable, useful information?
1: So I guess it depends what do you study. Um, but in Antarctic ice cores, uh, when you measure water isotopes, it's way of measuring what water molecule has undergone, different process from evaporation uh, on the ocean to its precipitation. And so, when you measure the ratios uh, in Antarctic ice core, especially on the East Antarctic Plateau, then it's a way of uh, measuring the local temperature where the precipitation happened and the condensation of the water in the air mass happened.
0: So uh, you can actually get yeah. you can actually get temperatures from these and sort of condensations.
1: Yeah. So measuring a water isotope in an ice core, it's um, Called a proxy for a uh, past uh, local temperature, so condensation temperature. It's a derived way of um, measuring something. So we cannot directly measure the past temperature in an ice core. So we use proxy, a derived way uh, to reconstruct it. But of course, there is some issues and challenges that comes with it. But um, the global idea. And that's how you say, well, I don't know, 3000 years ago, it was this temperature in Antarctica.
0: So this sounds straightforward, then you get snow, it piles up and it forms ice. Um, presumably to study this and study how what the, how temperature or condensation temperature affects this, you can just set this up in a lab. It's very straightforward. Or is it a little more complicated than that?
1: <laughs> yes. So, of course, it's not that straightforward. And uh, I'm personally working on one of the challenges to actually use um, water stable water isotopes as a temperature proxy. In Antarctica, where um, it's very dry and very cold, you don't get a lot of precipitation so that the surface of the ice sheet, uh, the surface snow, is exposed for some time uh, before being buried deeper in the ice sheet. And during that exposure time to the atmosphere, you get some processes happening at the surface that are modifying the snow isotopic composition. Then it's, it complicates a bit the things like how, how do you reconstruct the past climate from ice core?
0: So these processes could be everything from winds or storms passing overheads from you know, penguins walking overhead.
1: So, (laughs) yes, for the first two uh, penguins, we don't get them uh, in the East Antarctic Plateau, but...
0: uh... (laughs) So how how does wind, for example, affect this? Or is wind one of the main processes that affects this?
1: Um, yes, wind is definitely one of them, because when you drill an ice core, you are very uh, localized. So you drill uh, yeah in one specific point. But um, the question is, how is it representative from uh, like spatially? And the wind plays a key role in this. It doesn't need a lot of wind for the snow to redistribute. Um, so sometimes you can get the whole annual layer being removed uh, totally. So you don't get this annual uh, print of uh, in your snowpack but also it, wind has a pumping effect so it uh, pushes down air or uh, pumps out air of the snowpack and this can of course have an impact on uh, information you are you have in your snowpack.
0: So this can actually shift the layers so that they'd rise up or sink down and in some case it can remove a layer completely. How does that work when you're you know looking at the snow the ice core you've pulled out and counting down layers how do you handle that when layers are just disappeared can you tell
1: yeah yes this matters of course in the first um upper meters of the snowpack where you still get these uh annual layers but of course this then it's transferred to the ice so it's um yeah it's a tough question and um there are some different challenges, and but deeper in the snowpack, for example, diffusion has a very strong impact as well. Diffusions of uh, molecules inside the snowpack or in the ice. So yes, it's a matter of like which effect has the most impact. And but,
0: so presumably, yeah. then it's it's really important that when you take an ice core, you have some knowledge of what's actually happening in these locations. Um, which requires you to actually go and spend time and take measurements and do field studies there.
1: Yes, Um, the idea is really to understand the atmosphere, so formation of your precipitation that will transform in ice ice cores to what's happening at the surface and to what's happening deeper and deeper, and then like all the way from the atmosphere to the bottom ice, and to understand which which processes are affecting, uh, yeah, everything on the signal you get from ice cores then.
0: So what sort of experiments or measurements would you do out on the ice?
1: I'm mostly focusing on processes happening at the surface of the ice sheet, meteorological uh, measurements, for example. So you get wind and temperature and uh, yeah, everything that's happening at the surface. And then we also put up instruments and do sampling for more specific reasons. And uh, one of the measurements that we do there is measuring the atmospheric isotopic composition to understand the variations throughout the year. And we do snow sampling for uh, yeah understanding how the snow isotopic composition varies on different timescales.
0: How does this all relate to your PhD? Because you only started back in September?
1: Yes, so fairly recently then. What
0: are you planning to do? <laughs> so
1: my um, goal is to understand those processes that uh, are relevant for um, this specific location of Antarctica. To have kind of a um, holistic approach to understand what's the impact of the, these processes on the an- annual signal that we get uh, from this specific region. Currently, there is an ice core that is being drilled there, a new ice core that aims at retrieving 1.5 million years. It's a big record. It aims at retrieving 1.5 million years of climate back in time. Currently, the longest record is 800,000 years.
0: You've just started your PhD and prior to that, you did a master's but there was some space in between those two.
1: Um, yes, exactly. Two years in
0: between. <laughs> and during this time, you actually went and worked in Antarctica.
1: Yes, I've done what is called a uh, winter over. So I've spent... Uh a bit more than a year in Antarctica um, on the East Antarctic Plateau so actually where I'm um, field location is now so it's in the Dome Sea region on the station that is called Concordia. So
0: I, even just getting to Antarctica how do you get to it it's it's quite complicated isn't it the ships have to go in with the ice flow and sort of come out with it as well and they can only really do that at the beginning and end of summer once it starts getting into winter. They don't get in.
1: You only can get there from November to February, and then from February to oh, like November again. Then it's called the winter time, where um, the stations are closed, kind of. There is only the winter over crew that stays there, and uh, for nine months, is complete isolation.
0: Because this is actually quite the problem, isn't it? Many people that do do research in Antarctica, they quite often go there for the summer months, but it's quite a different thing to winter over there and actually stay for that long period because it's several months in darkness, isolation and absolutely terrible conditions.
1: Yeah, it's not that bad, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, where I stayed, so in in Concordia, um, you get three months of uh, full light and then three months of full darkness uh, during the year and um, yes about the um, like scientific programs which is what is interesting is of course people go for during mostly during the summer campaign and uh, that's why we have a winter over crew like me that stays for throughout the whole year to make the programs also run during the winter time and this is a very interesting time for like measurements because you can know what's happening in the summer but if you don't know what's happening in the rest of the year then you're missing a big part of um, the information so that's why we have scientific programs also running the winter time and uh, people staying in the stations to maintain the instruments and do sampling and everything um, yes so it was definitely a very nice experience, uh, also during the winter time.
0: So, what sort of temperatures are you getting down to in summer and then the winter?
1: Yeah, <laughs> in the summertime, I would say it's about minus thirty. Uh, it can reach minus twenty. Um, this is like the warm, <laughs> warm days. Yeah. And in the winter time, we went down to minus seventy nine or something. And then when you get the wind chill, which is Uh, And then even worse, we reached minus uh, 104. And that was the coldest uh, we got during the year.
0: And wind isn't trivial in Antarctica. When some of the early explorers first landed there, they said how... The wind seems to come from every direction of course this is catabatic flows.
1: Yes so you get them on the coast mostly at Dome Sea these high elevation points so you don't get a lot of catabatic katab- winds it's mostly only few wind most of the year and sometimes you get a bit but yeah.
0: So did you have any problems with sort of winter over syndrome this these sort of issues that people get from being under those sort of conditions?
1: You should ask maybe my uh, winter over uh, companions. <laughs> companions, yeah. Um, I don't think I got that affected, but um, yes, you get off during the winter time you are a bit more tired, and uh, it went no, fine most of okay. <laughs> <So> it.
0: <laughs> what was your daily life like? I mean, if you describe just a normal day being there, what was it like?
1: I would uh, wake up in the morning and then have uh, breakfast with all the station Uh, and then I would uh, either work a bit in the lab uh, if I had some analysis to do Um, or I go outside for uh, the morning and then go maintaining um, the instruments that are in the field. Uh, Then go back to the station for lunch with all the others uh, from the station.
0: How do you find the instruments in the field in total darkness in the middle of winter?
1: It is very localised around the station. So you have the main station and then the instruments are um, like as far as one kilometre away from the station. And there are some cable lines that lead to it. So you you know your way around after some time. (laughs) But it can be challenging, yes. Uh,
0: It sounds like quite a challenging environment to work in for that long.
1: It, it was something that was really hard uh, to also be alone, like 1.5 km away from the station and doing sampling in full darkness. But it was also very very uh, intense and cool uh, experience, I would say.
0: And very necessary if we want to continue using ice cores to accurately date what's happened in the past.
1: Yeah, exactly. It felt useful being there for the year, so... <laughs>
0: So would you recommend uh, overwintering or working in Antarctica to other potential PhD students?
1: Oh, yes, <laughs> definitely.
0: <laughs> so we're at the end of our podcast today. We've been talking with Ines Olivia about living and working in Antarctica. Ines, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I'm Stephen Allen, here with my colleague Ingil Pilsk, hoping you'll join us again for another Björknas podcast. Thank you for listening. You have now been listening to a podcast from the Berkne Center for Climate Research. The center is a collaboration between the University of Bergen, Norwegian Research Center NORS, the Nansen Environmental and Remote Sensing Center, and the Institute of Marine Research IMR. The music is from Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage BY 3.0. The recording was done at UIB. Lars Laban at Media City Bergen. This podcast was produced by me, Inger Piskul, Associate Professor at Western Norway University of Applied Sciences.